Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello, this is David Hepworth uh, with The Word Podcast. Word Podcast with a slight difference, as you'll probably have detected already. This is not recorded in the Islington in London, swinging Islington, where our podcasts normally are recorded in front of an enthusiastic live audience. Uh, Mark Ellen and I did this a couple of times recently in the last couple of weeks um, around my new book, Uncommon People, The Rise and Fall of the rock stars, And I think it's fair to say the splendid time was, was had by all. But sadly, we didn't emerge from either of the evenings with a recording which uh, came up to the highest standards that I realised people have come to expect of the word podcast over the years in its long journey from two cocoa tins and a bit of string to the... Uh, extraordinary hi-fi experience that you're all used to nowadays and so we thought rather than just let the opportunity go by we would i would i would uh just pretty much say in a podcast a lot of the things that i said on those two evenings at the islington about my book and that might be interesting to some people, and so um, so here I am on my own in my um, in my loft at home with my recording equipment, and uh, I want to just talk about uncommon people. And uh, I wrote my first book, nineteen seventy one, never a dull moment. Uh, it came out about a year ago, and and wouldn't you know, it did quite well actually, uh, so well that the the publishers wanted me to do another book and um and they said what do you want to do a book about and i eventually said i'd like to do a book about rock stars uh, rock stars as a tribe rock stars as a breed rock stars as a kind of social type who have dominated my life uh, over the last 40 years or so and it's quite interesting, this, because, you know, people very often, musicians, when musicians want to say something 
flattering or ingratiating to somebody like me who scribbles about music for a living. Uh, they'll tend to say things like, uh, the good thing about you is you're interested in the music, not the personalities, because they're very disapproving of people who are interested in the personalities. And because the truth is, I'm really interested in the personalities. I always have been really interested in the personalities. And my kind of affair with pop music throughout my life has been driven by enthusiasm for the music, obviously, but also interest in and involvement with the accompanying personalities. And it strikes me that what the rock star is is a, is a, is a relationship between a music and a personality that gives the music life, gives the music legs, gives the music the basis of a relationship with us that we continue for a very long time. In fact, far longer than any of us would have initially envisaged. And uh, so your classic rock star is a, is a fantasy friend, a friend that you probably first acquired around about the age of 13 or 14 when you were young and impressionable. And uh, these these rock stars were supposed to have the kind of uh, career life expectancy of mayflies because that wasn't the case at all. Uh, we all know the way this has worked out is that, you know, 40, 50 years later, they're still our fantasy friends and we still, you know, look at them every now and again when they emerge to put out a record or on go on tour or something happens in their lives. And we can't help measuring ourselves against them to see how both of us have uh, have dealt with the passing of time, sometimes successfully, sometimes less so. So we've had a very long, long relationship with these people. So I wanted to write about rock stars as a tribe, as a social group. And the thing that struck me when I started thinking about the idea was that Rock stars as a tribe are probably over. Now, that that's not to say that there aren't still people who play what is identifiably rock music and probably behave in a kind of rock star way. Um, but I think the kind of glory days when they were the only game in town are pretty much gone. And it struck me that, that probably the last one... Uh, the last of the tribe um, was Kurt Cobain. And Kurt Cobain died in 1994, which is, you know, over 20 years ago. And, you know, we still obviously have musical stars and we'll continue to have musical stars. But I don't think they're rock stars in quite the same way as those people were. And if you trace back through, you know, Kurt Cobain and you, and you go back through, I don't know, you go back through Prince, you go back through Bruce Springsteen, you go back through the Beatles and you go back through Buddy Holly and Elvis Presley and so forth. I think there was one kind of tradition, um, many variations, many different sorts of rock stars, but one kind of basic tradition. And I don't think that you can keep a musical era going for longer than roughly 40 years. I think if you look at the history of other genres, you look at, I don't know, country music, you know, which became very popular in the United States in the end of the 1920s and probably goes through to the end of the 1960s until it gets reinvented as all, all kinds of different things. You look at jazz, uh, you know, from jazz, I suppose, starts as a major popular music at the end of the First World War. And 
and, and then ceases to be a major popular music at the end of the 1950s. That's not to say that jazz is, isn't still around. Of course it is. It exists in loads and loads of ways. But it is not the broad-based popular music that it was. And so I think the same thing could be said about rock. So that's what I, I set out to do. The other thing that interested me was that um, nowadays, even though there, there seem to be less rock stars about, um, we talk about people being like rock stars more than we ever did before. And, uh, you know, so we talk about politicians being rock star politicians or TV chefs being rock star chefs or even financial analysts can be rock star analysts. I actually, you know, it, I do advise you to do this. If you've got a spare moment, you just go into Google and just put the expression like a rock star into Google and see what outlandish ideas you can come up with. The most recent thing I came up with was a website which is about, all about needlework which was called, which had offered you, promised you the opportunity to learn how to sew like a rock star, you know. So that, that interested me. Uh, you know, what do we mean when we say you do these things like a rock star? You know, what, is, what does rock star come to mean to us? And so I, I, if, you, if you'll indulge me for a second, I'll just read you a little bit out of the, out of the, um, the foreword of the book where I talk about this. In characterising people as rock stars, we are superimposing on them qualities we associated with actual rock stars in the past. It's only when we describe people who aren't rock stars as being like rock stars that we get an inkling of the qualities we came to associate with rock stars as a tribe. What kind of qualities? Swagger, impudence, sexual charisma utter self-reliance, damn the torpedo's self-belief, a tendency to act on instinct, a particular way of carrying themselves, good hair, interesting shoes. Similarly, there are qualities rock star types do not have. A rock star chef will not refer too closely to the recipe. A rock star politician will not be overly enthralled to the focus group. A rock star athlete will not go to bed at the time specified by the coach. A rock star fund manager will make a huge call based on a gut feeling rather than indulge in a prolonged period of desk research and make a sober examination of the evidence. Recklessness, thy name is rock. In fact, a deficiency in wreck is the defining characteristic we ascribe to rock stars as a social group. We believe in this recklessness so strongly, we even ignore any evidence to the contrary, of which there is plenty. Keith Moon never did run a Rolls-Royce into a swimming pool. The Beatles never did smoke grass at Buckingham Palace. The police never did drop in to find guests at Keith Richards' home munching a Mars bar between Marianne Faithful's legs. But such is our need to believe that generations of followers of rock myths and legends have laid their heads on their pillows and screwed their eyes tight shut, hoping against hope they might wake to find out such things had been the case. So what I wanted to do in this book... Sorry, I'm not reading from the book any longer. What I wanted to do in this book was, was to look at the people 
who became rock stars to look at what the experience of becoming rock stars did to them and to also look at what our selection of them as rock stars says about us. And the way I set about doing it in order to plot these 40 years, which I have beginning in 1955 and ending in 1995, is I picked one rock star on one day in each of these years. So I took, I took one example just focused entirely on one day. One day when they did something significant, one day when something changed, whether for good or for ill, one kind of defining moment. And what I wanted to do was to build up a picture throughout the book by taking all these defining moments together. Because despite what fashion editors and TV art directors may believe, there isn't one stereotypical rock star. When we talk about rock stars, we're talking about a whole basket of different characteristics because all sorts of people were rock stars, you know. Little Richard was a rock star. Ian Dury was a rock star. Bruce Springsteen was a rock star. Loads and loads. Of, they're all very, very different kinds of people. But what I wanted to do was by picking these different people on these different days, going through these defining moments, as the years go by, I hope that the experience of reading it will be something like kind of looking at a flick book where you see the, the changing shape of the rock star over that period of time. And I hope that the experience of reading it might be both educational and entertaining. I started the book in 1955 because um, I wanted to write about Little Richard. Little Richard absolutely fascinates me and in some senses slightly predates Elvis Presley. And I think in many senses was kind of almost more of a rock star than Elvis Presley because he was made of such unlikely clay, whereas Elvis was beautiful. Little Richard was very nearly grotesque. Um, and he was the kind of wildest figure, probably the wildest figure in the history of rock and roll. And in 1955... He turns up at a studio in Ramp on Rampart Street in New Orleans to make a record uh, with Bumps Blackwell, who's a producer who's sent by Specialty Records in Los Angeles. And uh, he's not had a hit before. He's made records before. He's only young. He's, he's done all kinds of strange things. He's, he's gone on the road with uh, Sugarfoot Sam from Alabama. He's... Uh, appeared as uh, in full drag as Princess Lavon. You know, if you read about Little Richard's early career, you, sometimes you think you're reading a treatment of a Coen Brothers fantasy. But no, it's real. Anyway, none of this stuff had earned him a hit record. Uh, and so he did very... They, in, they recorded in New Orleans that morning. And they came up with nothing particularly good in the morning, but they, they took a lunch break in, in the Dew Drop Inn, which is a place where musicians hung out. And uh, 
He was in there surrounded by the kind of people who hung out at the Dewdrop Inn, who were kind of pimps, whores and rounders, um, as people recalled. And he decided he would keep them entertained by going over to the piano and uh, hammering away at a, at a song that he always used to sing to, to get sniggers out of his band. Uh, and it was a song that he knew would never be recorded, never had any reason to be recorded, because it was so eye-wateringly obscene. In fact, he was concerned very clearly with the mechanics of anal sex, uh, which was presumably something that Richard had some expertise in. Anyway, it was a catchy tune, particularly the opening, because uh, the opening was a kind of percussion figure that he used to used to amuse himself by tapping out on the lunch counter that he worked in worked on in the bus station in Macon, Georgia. Um, and Bumps' ears pricked up and said. I think we could make that a hit. And Richard said, no, you can't possibly do that. It's too filthy. It's too obscene. You know, it's impossible. So Bumper said no. And he said he called up a woman called Dorothy Labostri, who was a woman who'd be bombarding him with uh, poems and would-be song lyrics for a while. He called her down to the studio and said, right, now's your big chance. Richard, sing that song for this lady. And Richard being both a libertine and a prude, uh, would only do this if she turned her back. And so she turned her back. He played the song, and uh, she played it a couple of times, and she wrote down what she could remember, and then she went away. And 15 minutes later, she returned with bowdlerized lyrics that they dared record, and they they went back to the, the studio later in the afternoon. And in three takes, at the end of the session... They recorded her new version of the song, which was now known. It began, of course, you know, you'll be familiar with the way it began. It started with with the words, a wop bop, a loo bop, and it continued with a lop, bam, boom. And that was Tutti Fruity. And that was, you know, a huge hit all over the world and uh, made Little Richard's name and launch him, launched him onto a career which, which continues to this day. And uh, I'll read you again for the book. It was released in the UK in January 1957 on the B-side of Long Tall Sally. David Jones, a nine-year-old at Burnt Ash Junior School in Bromley, later recalled that his heart burst with excitement. Keith Richards, who was 12 and attending Dartford Technical High School for Boys, said it was as if, in a single instant, the world changed from monochrome to technicolour. And Bobby Zimmerman, the boy who'd been tuning his radio to the sound of Shreveport, Louisiana, from up there in the Iron Range of Minnesota, led a group called the Golden Golden Chords, who appeared in a school concert playing their own version of Little Richard's song. It was an unimaginably hot, exotic sound to be attempted by anyone other than the people who made it that day in New Orleans, let alone a bunch of Jewish adolescents from the frozen north. Regardless of that, the die was cast. The high school yearbook entry for Bobby Zimmerman's final year at Hibbing High in 1959 announced his ambition. He didn't want to run for president... 
He didn't want to write the great American novel. He wanted one thing, to join Little Richard. So I've written about Little Richard, who obviously was a huge rock star. Um, I've also written about people who are kind of less likely rock stars. Uh, I was interested particularly in Hank Marvin, um, who I think was the, the guitar hero who inspired all the guitar heroes of the 60s. You know, so if you ask the likes of Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton, what got them excited about the guitar? It was Hank Marvin, who was a very unlikely character, really, to inspire this kind of thing. But I think the whole idea of a, of a guitar hero, and isn't it interesting we don't have saxophone heroes or piano heroes or even drum heroes, the idea of the guitar heroes being something some, somewhat noble, this person kind of stepping to the front of the stage and jousting with the darkness on our behalf, playing these very noble tunes, as was the case with the Shadows. All the, all the tunes were very much boys' own adventures. I think you can trace lots of things back to Hank Marvin into progressive music and beyond. I've written a lot about... I came, One person I came out of the experience of writing this book with enhanced respect for was Buddy Holly. And I think Buddy Holly was is, is the alpha and omega of this whole thing, really. Uh, Buddy Holly was the person who inspired the likes of John Lennon and uh, Bob Dylan and John Fogarty in all kinds of ways, because he didn't look like a supernatural human being. He looked like the guy next door. He looked like a bit of a nerd. And he sang songs inspired by his girlfriend or a catchphrase he'd heard on a TV program. He he set down that template of, uh, of kind of do-it-yourself, which is very much part of rock and roll. And, of course, because of the tragic circumstances of his death, he had a story, and a story that was complete, sadly, and that only served to enhance his legend. And uh, he went on tour in 1959. He was very famous at the time and very successful, but he had no money because he'd fallen out with his manager. Syndrome to be repeated many times over the years. And uh, so he was persuaded to undertake this tour of the frozen north of the United States of America in the dead of winter. And uh, it was so cold on this tour that uh, the the artists travelled on two buses that they used to keep themselves warm by burning newspapers in the aisle of the the bus. And after every show, they do two shows every night, and after after the last show they would go into the back on the bus and they would just strip off their fetid, sweaty stage gear and just throw it in the back of the bus where obviously after a time it began to hum it hummed so badly that according to records even small boys remarked upon it if that give you an idea and uh, Buddy's sad death came about because of his his effort to get his laundry done in time for the next show which is something normally impossible he thought that if he took a plane ride from um, uh, from Clear Lake, Iowa to Fargo, 
to be in time for the next show, uh, that he would be kind of ahead of the game. And uh, he took that plane ride along with Richie Valens and the big bopper, the plane ride that only lasted a few minutes before they came down in the snow. The tragic end. Um, but the establishment also of the legend of Buddy Holly, which still endures to this day. And it's the beginning of the kind of tragic element in the rock star story. Because the tragic element is always a really powerful thing throughout the years. It's it's what sustained and, and driven the cult of the rock star. So that's Buddy Holly. Um, I've written about, uh, written about Ringo Starr, because Ringo Starr fascinates me. I've also written about a man who didn't become a rock star, because I think that's interesting in itself. And, uh, and that person is Ian Stewart, who was one of the founder members of the Rolling Stones, although they were known in those days as the Rolling Stones, apostrophe, at the end. He played the piano. <coughs> and he was a very important figure. He was a lot more organised than the rest of the Rolling Stones. <coughs> Excuse me. He had a job and, and he had a van. So you can imagine how important he was to the group. And um, he was let go uh, by the band after they signed their first, <coughs> excuse me, first uh, record contract, uh, which was negotiated for them by Andrew Oldham and Eric Easton. And um, Oldham was very excited about the Rolling Stones because he, he, he knew that as compared to most of the R&B bands that were kicking around London at the time, they had something that most of them didn't. They had sex appeal. They had a huge sex appeal. And he was very excited about this. And uh, so they signed a record deal. And if I may, if you'll indulge me again, I'll just read you a bit of, uh, from the book in the chapter about 1963, which is about Ian Stewart. Um, as soon as the uh, the contract had been written, on the 1st of, Mar- uh, 1st of May 1963, Alderman Easton got Mick and Keith in a room and told them that henceforth they would be the Rolling Stones and not the Rolling Stones, that Mick and Keith would be the heart of the group and that Ian Stewart could continue to drive the van, the van he had bought and paid for, and play on sessions. Indeed, he could take the same stage with them just as long as he remained behind the curtain. Henceforth, he would no longer be in the group. Oldham's reasons were similarly threefold. Apart from the practical difficulties of lugging what is effectively an item of furniture around on the road, the presence of an upright piano such as many middle-class families still had in their living room in those days would be at odds with his preferred image of the Stones as a nimble, naughty guitar band. By having five members, the band was already asking a lot of people's capacity for recall. And finally, most crushingly, most tellingly, and most indicative of why Andrew Lugaldum is remembered as a great band manager, he told them that Ian Stewart spoiled the look of the group. The word, the word Oldham used was ugly. Oldham was right. Stew didn't fit the picture. In fact, he looked as if he came from an earlier decade. As Oldham said, Stew had a chin like the American actor William Bendix, who was a figure from an even earlier decade. In the very few early publicity pictures which include him, Ian Stewart looks embarrassed at the whole business of having his picture taken. Although the Rolling Stones were not conventionally handsome, 
and within a year would be attracting headlines like, is this the ugliest group in Britain? They had a look. It was a look that the presence of Ian Stewart simply ruined. As Keith said, I'm sure much of Ian's character was influenced by his looks and people's reactions to them from when he was a kid. Mick and Keith didn't fight it, nor to his credit did Stu. As Keith recalled, he'd said, I'm here as long as I can still play piano. We'll hang together in the band and I'll not be in the pictures. That takes a big heart, but Stu had one of the largest hearts around. He would continue to be the key person in their entourage and their right-hand man for the next 20 years. He died in a doctor's waiting room in 1985. Most nights between 1962 and then he would call them to the stage of some enormous arena with the words, Come on, my little shower of shit. Nobody else could begin to talk to them that way. He was the last person to address them as if they were simple human beings, not rock gods. He could do that because he might not have been paid for it. He might not have been seen doing it. He might not have had his name on the records. But spiritually, he was still in the band. Over the years, they reasoned his departure away. I don't think Ian could imagine being a pop star, said Mick, which was true. Stu was only interested in playing the kind of music that didn't get above number 45 in the charts, and his face literally didn't fit. That was as good a reason as any for putting him out of the group. The best decision the Beatles took was to bring Ringo Starr in. The best the Stones took was to chuck Ian Stewart out. So that's Ian Stewart in uh, 1963. Uh, I followed it through the 60s. I got a chapter about Brian Wilson in 1964, a chapter about Keith Moon and Roger Daltrey in 1965, Jimi Hendrix in 1966, Janis Joplin in 1967, uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney in 1968, Black Sabbath 1969, and so forth, into the 70s. Uh, chapters about Bruce Springsteen, about David Bowie. Uh, David Bowie is on the cover of the book. Uh, the famous picture of him uh, getting out of a limousine down the side of the Hammersmith Odeon, surrounded by enthralled 15-year-olds who bunked off school for the day. Uh, I've written about Bob Marley, I've written about Led Zeppelin, uh, and into the 80s, uh, I've written about Bob Geldof and U2 and Bob Dylan and so forth, and uh, I've written about Fleetwood Mac and Stevie Nicks and all kinds of people. You know, it's, it's, it's my selection, it's a subjective selection. Not everybody is in there, but I hope that people will find it entertaining to read and instructive in terms of building up that picture. And it sadly finishes with the with the death of Kurt Cobain in 1994, who, it strikes me, felt more of the weight of the responsibility of, of what he thought a rock star ought to be than just about anybody else. And that was one of the things that he, he simply couldn't deal with, that he saw himself as the, the leader of this indie punk group who were also happened to be the biggest thing in the world and were making extraordinary sums of money and he didn't feel very good about that and he didn't feel he 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 could look the fan base in the eye in the way that he thought he ought to and uh, he felt he ha- he had to keep it real as people are always saying about rock stars 
because one of my points in the book is I think we, we ask the impossible rock stars. We want them to, to grow up, but we also want them to stay forever young. We want everybody to like them, but we also want to have our own kind of privileged access to them. We want them to be larger than life, but we also want them to be kind of like us as well. You know, one of the great tests of a rock star is people always say, they always say about their rock heroes, it's the kind of person, he's the kind of person I could go for a drink with, and we get on very, very well. Would we? I don't know. But that's, that's the illusion that we, we clutch to our breast. So, you know, in my version, Kurt Cobain is the last of them. As I said at the beginning, he's not the last of the music stars, not by any means, but he's the last of that kind of rock star. Why? Well, if you look at the, you know, he dies and not long afterwards you get the end of, or the beginning of the end of physical product and you get the, the rise of the internet. And at the same time, you also get the rise of social media, which has clearly had a massive effect on all our lives. But I think it's particularly... It would have a particularly inhibiting um, effect on the lives of, of rock stars. I've written about this in the kind of epilogue uh, at the end of the book. So if you'll forgive me, I'll just read that bit. Concurrent with this has been the growth, growth of social media, which has changed all our lives. It's inconceivable that any young musician coming along today could keep his background in the shadows as young Bob Dylan managed to do. It's unimaginable that a band of today would be able to behave as Led Zeppelin and David Bowie did during the early 70s tours. All their misbehaviour would be webcast live. They would be regularly required to do the one thing the stars of yesteryear, yesteryear never did, apologise. Rock fans like to feel that their heroes misbehave but wouldn't really wish to see the evidence. As Badgett said of the monarchy, you should never let daylight in on magic. The stars of the 60s and 70s had a long run in the spotlight because in their early days, access to them was strictly limited. It's difficult to imagine the stars of today still being stars in 20 years' time because we already know everything there is to know about them. At the age of 17, in 1967... I was fortunate enough to see Louis Armstrong play. He was in his mid-sixties by then, not in the best of health. Nevertheless, it was a privilege to see an artist who had been there when the tradition he represented was first established. In the same spirit, I'd encourage any young person to see Bruce Springsteen or the Rolling Stones or Paul McCartney in concert, even though they might be having to sing their songs in the only key they can still reach, and their knees might not be quite as forgiving as they once were. I would encourage young people to see them because they are the last of a breed. Once they've gone, nobody will be doing what they do. When they go, the art will go with them. I don't see any sign of the acts who came afterwards, who were born in the late 80s and 90s, accumulating successive generations of fans, or acquiring the patina of legend in quite the same way. But that may just be the prejudice that comes from the perspective of a particular generation. It could be that Muse and Laura Marling will be headlining the main stage at Glastonbury in their 70s. All history is subjective. This book is no exception. So there you are. That's the book. It's called Uncommon People 
The Rise and Fall of the Rock Stars. It's available in all good bookshops right now. And I do hope you'll enjoy it. And I do hope you'll uh, subscribe to listen to further Word Podcasts. Go to wordpodcast.co.uk and sign on. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. 